turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Genesis, chapter 11. Let's start reading in verse 1. And the whole earth was of, what's it say? One language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this is such a a foundational passage of Scripture. These and the other texts we'll look at this morning. And Lord, these are not just uh, antediluvian stories or anachronisms of of a bygone era. But these are foundational doctrinal texts to help us understand what was going to happen in the world. So, Father, help us to see them as we uh, read them through your eyes. We understand that interpretation belongs to you, not to us, and that you have given us the interpretation in Scripture. And, Father, help us to see that you do have a plan for this age and this world and this time, and that none of this takes you by surprise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. How many of you have noticed that the world is a mess? Have you noticed that? And you would think that with the with the advent of technology, that life would be getting easier. We have more access to information now. We have more help to do our jobs than ever before, and yet we are busier than we have ever been. I want you to think about something. When your great-grandparents got done tilling the field, they would go inside and sit down, and I know this is going to shock you, and talk. And now our world has us so busy in so many different ideas and influences coming into the world. Well, this series is called What in the World is Going On? What in the World is Going On? And this morning, we're going to lay the foundation for it to get the answer from the first book in the Bible. So go with me to verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And you understand that that is exactly what the world wants again. The world wants to be one. Anyone heard of John Lennon? That great theologian? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. There's no war. There's no divisions. That's what the world wants. The world wants us all to be one. And it's very interesting. We're going to look at this next week. We're going to look at how all of this has influenced world religion. When you look at the religions of the world, most of the religions of the world, if it's, you know, they're part of the United Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches, what they are working for is world peace and a one world people. How many of you kids have heard this? We're citizens of the world. How many of you have heard that at school? That you're a citizen of the world. Well, that's impossible unless there's a one-world political system. Citizenship brings with it certain privileges and certain responsibilities. And citizenship in the United States is a great, great privilege. Amen? 
And as a citizen of the United States, we have the protection of the most powerful nation in the world. What is the protection that you get as a citizen of the world? When UN forces are sent in, who is sent in? The United States. When peacekeepers are sent in, oh yes, there's a coalition of 60 nations, but it's, you know, 100,000 Americans and 150 people from other countries. It's, how many of you have noticed that that's the way that it generally works? And please don't quote me on those numbers. But it is interesting that the world is seeking again to be one. Remember Coke commercials? I'd like to teach the world to sing. That is that whole concept of globalism and oneness that the world is looking for. Let's see. Now somebody's going to say, Pastor doesn't think we should drink Coke. <laughs> Don't get distracted. What we're going to see is that what the world wants is always just the opposite of what God wants for the world. So let's look at this again. Chapter 11 and verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. This land in the plain of Shinar is going to become very important throughout the rest of your Bible. And so here in a minute, we're going to go through the scriptures and we're going to try to understand where this is. But there was a leader here in this city that they're going to build. Who is their leader? Go to Genesis chapter 10. Look at verse 7. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtachah, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, we can, we can really narrow this down to where it is. The land of Shinar today would be Iraq. But not only Iraq. Keep your place in Genesis. Go to Micah. So if you start at Malachi and go backwards, you'll find it. The Italian prophet. Go to Micah chapter 5. And look at verse 6. And they shall waste the land of what? With the sword. And the land of Nimrod in the entrances there, in the entrances thereof. So the land of Assyria, the entrances and the land of Assyria is the land of Nimrod. So we have Assyria and Iraq. Syria and Iraq. And then when if we trace it further through the scriptures, we'll find that it's also Persia which would be Iran. And we know that at the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire had sided with the Axis powers or with those involved in the, the German side. And at the end of the war, the British mandate took place. 
And you have the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And what happened to the Sykes-Picot Agreement was the Middle East was the, that whole Ottoman Empire, the British Empire came in and divided it up and some of them were under the British mandate, some of them went to the authority of France, and it was divided up among the victors because to the victor goes the spoils. Is that right? And so the divisions, it's interesting, if you look at a map of that area, the Middle East, the nations divided by the peoples would be by the people groups in them. You would have divided it this way, but Sykes and Pico in their brilliance divided it this way, and so now we have all kinds of war. So if you think about Iraq, there are three different groups of people in Iraq. You have the Kurds in the north, and then you have the Sunni and Shia divided up between the, the, the middle and the south. It should have been divided this way, but it was divided this way, and so we have wars. And when you look at that part of the world, I want you to think of Nimrod, but about 30 miles south of Baghdad is a city you may have heard of. It's called Babylon. Now, the Bible is truly a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. No, not those cities. It's a tale of Jerusalem, and the Bible mentions Jerusalem a little over 300 times, and Babylon, and the Bible mentions Babylon 280 times. One is the city of God. Which, which one do you think that is? Jerusalem. And one is the city of Satan. And the city of Satan is Babylon. And the plains of Shinar, we're going to find all kinds of activity and evil activity that takes place in the plains of Shinar. And its foundation came from Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. All right, so look back at Genesis chapter 10 and look at verse... 9, the Bible says, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I want you to look at that. There's two aspects to that. The mighty hunter, the mighty hunter. Do we have any hunters in the church here? Any hunters? All right. In the Bible, a hunter is always evil. <laughs> is that awesome? It's really true. There are only two hunters mentioned and maybe a third. All right. The two are Nimrod and Esau. And the third would be Ishmael. That's good company, isn't it? Now, the concept, though, is very important. Of course, we know that men always went out to gather meat for their family. All right? That's not the use of hunter in the Bible. The use of a hunter in the Bible is to hunt men. They're hunting men. And I want you to notice something about Nimrod. Look at what it says about him again in verse 10. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, before the Lord. Don't make the mistake of thinking that that statement before the Lord, I think that's used 260 times in the Bible, before the Lord. Sometimes it is before the Lord in worship, where we bow before the Lord in worship. Other times it is before the Lord, like shaking a fist in his face. And other times it is just the Lord Everything is before him. He knows exactly what you are doing and thinking and where you are and what you're doing. And so the context will always tell us what that means. And with Nimrod, it is a combination of shaking your fist before God and God being aware of what he's doing. The other thing that I want you to see is this. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, it says that he began to be, verse 8, and Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, any of you who have studied the Bible for any length of time, 
you know where that mighty ones begins in the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, those sons of God, we need to, we're not going to take the time to go through this, but if you have any questions about it later, I'm happy to answer them. The Bible makes it very clear that a son of God is a direct creation of God. It's not a person that's born. It's a direct creation of God. The Bible says in Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, I believe, that Adam, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, it gets to Adam, which begat, which begat, which begat, and it gets to Adam, which was the son of God. Was Adam born or was he created? Created. He was a direct creation of God. Lucifer is called a son of God. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 28, in the day when thou wast created. He was a created being. So a, a son of God is a direct creation of God. Then the Bible says we are sons of God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, You're a, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that is a new birth. That's a new creature. That is a son of God. So a son of God is a direct creation of God. The Bible says in the book of Job, chapter 38, that, the, that he's asking Job, God is asking Job this question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And a few verses later it says, when the sons of God sang for joy. So when God creates the world, these sons of God are, always, are already in existence. And these sons of God, angels, come and they leave their first estate, according to the book of Jude. The angels, which kept not their first estate, are kept in chains of darkness unto the day of judgment. Those angels that kept not their first estate are these. And they come in, they take on bodies, and they enter into the daughters of men, and they take them for wives. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare them children to them, the same became, what's it say? Mighty men which are of old, men of renown. And so when you look at the mythology that came out of Babylon, with the memory of this, you end up with, Hercules and all of these, these mighty men of renown that are half man and half God. And just, just briefly, keep your place here and go with me to Psalms 82, 82nd Psalm. <laughs> it's fun when God does this. I brought you here to show you who these gods are. And look at what God shows us in verse 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the, what's it say? Gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. So God's going to deal with that in the, tribulate, or in the millennium. Now, look at what it says in verse 5. They, verse 4, Deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked, 
They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Direct creation of God. Do you see that? Adam, son of God, direct creation of God. Verse 7. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. The Bible describes the prince of Persia, these demon entities. You shall fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So what happens is God judges these mighty men, and they die like men. And that's what takes place in the flood. Now, drop down with me. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right? Now go to chapter 8. And look at what it says. Um, Verse 21, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and this is after Noah built his ark, or built his his, uh, altar and offered the Lord after the flood, offered to the Lord. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Do you see that? So the idea of, of, of good people, uh, that's not a biblical concept, is it? Why is there so much depravity in the world? Because there are men in the world. All right? So now, what have we learned? Go back to Genesis chapter 10, and we see that Nimrod, verse 8, Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he had a kingdom in Babel. He had a kingdom in Babel. Okay, so now let's see if we can learn anything else. Go to Genesis chapter 11, and let's break down this story a little bit more. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, I want you to think about something. That's exactly what God wanted to happen. He didn't want all of the people to gather together in the plain of Shinar. When you read Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 9, and Genesis chapter 10... He was telling them, I want you to be on the face of the whole earth. He wanted them to go everywhere and populate the whole world, replenish the earth. Is that what God said to them? He didn't say replenish the plain of Shinar. He said replenish the earth. But under a wicked ruler, everyone had the same language. They had the same speech. And they were the same people all united together in one city. But they had a problem that God wanted to deal with. First of all, it was the, they had the wrong building materials. Look at verse 3. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. 
Now, that slime, isn't that a great word? Now, it's interesting. What is this talking about? Man-made materials. Brick is a man-made material. It's interesting. When God builds the church, He builds it out of lively stones. You and I are lively stones with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Is that right? That's who we are. And what is a rock? A rock was made by God, not a rock. A rock is made by God. Now, there are artificial stones, but they're not the same composition as a natural rock. Okay, so let me ask you again. Who made the rocks? God did. God is building a holy temple to Himself, and He calls it the church. Is that right? And so now here you have a false religion and a false government, a worldly government, trying to make a man-made structure. And it's interesting. They're using, they're building a man-made city and a man-made tower and a man-made religion out of man-made materials and oil. That slime, it's tar, it's pitch. And they had tar fields that they were able to go and just draw this material from it. And what do you think is happening right now in the Middle East? You have people that are trying to build a man-made kingdom and a man-made religion all based on the riches that come from oil. Is that exactly what's going on right now in the world? It's exactly what's happening. And God said, I do not want that to happen. So they had the wrong materials. Now, let me say this. You're not wrong if you have a brick house. Okay? That's not what it's talking about. He's establishing something here for the people before the law. Then, not only did they have the wrong materials, but they had the wrong motive in building. Look at verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. They had the wrong motive in building. It's all about us. It's all about man. One great, one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. It's all about man. Biggest problem in the world is man worship. When we're supposed to worship the Creator. We'll see that here in a second. Then, not only did they have the wrong motive in building, they built in the wrong place. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. A plain in the land of Shinar. Um, let's track this down through the Scriptures a little bit. Keep your place here in Genesis. We'll come back. But go to Daniel chapter 1. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into where? The land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So in Babylon, they had a religion. And they had a temple, they had a house built for a god in the plain of Shinar. And you know, Nebuchadnezzar ends up building an image. And in Daniel chapter 4, they had to bow down to that image. And if they refused to bow down to that image, they were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Do you remember that? 
And that describes exactly what's going to happen. If the people in the tribulation do not bow down before the image of the Antichrist, they are going to be beheaded. They're going to be burned. That's what the Bible says. That is the plains of Shinar. Go to Zechariah. There are many more references to this, but go to Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 5. And some of you will remember this from our study in the book of Zechariah. And it's an image that is given to the prophet about something that's going to happen. And look at what he says. Then the, verse 5, Zechariah 5, 5. Then the angel talked with me and went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what this that, what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said unto me, It is an ephah. Do you see that? It is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. An ephah is a measurement and it's the size of a basket. So the, the ephah is a basket. There's a specific size. And then look at what the text says. And their resemblance goes through all the earth. Who, who is they? Well, the Bible will tell us. And verse 7, And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. That's a certain amount of weight of lead. And this is a woman that, that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So it's an image of a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. Then look at what it says. Verse 8, And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Now, please don't make the mistake of thinking these are angels. Angels in the Bible are always men. Okay? This is not sexist. This is just what is in the Bible. There are no women angels in the Bible. All right? So if you happen to have a statue of a woman angel on your front yard, okay, what you have there is a demon. These evil winged creatures are always demons in the Bible. And here in this context, they're women. I'm not saying all women are demons. <laughs> all right? So that's what's going on. And look what they do. Where are they going to bear? Look at verse 10. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it and house in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. The base of operations for her. Who is she? Revelation chapter 17. Verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit 
into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, that's exactly where the plains of Shinar are. If you've ever, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it. Some of our men who fought in the Iraq war have seen it. You talk about wilderness, it is the middle of nowhere. Okay? Into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. All right, so what we have here is this is the full picture of what's happening in the plains of Shinar. There is a false religious system that started under Nimrod and his wife Semiramis. She had a son named Tammuz. And this son Tammuz was supposedly born after the death of Nimrod supernaturally. And then the child Tammuz was killed by a beast and came back to life. And this is the beginning of the mother-child cult this worship of the mother and the child that God calls an abomination there in the plains of Shinar. The Bible tells us that there is a house for the God of that religion in the plain of Shinar. In Zechariah, we understand that there is an image established there. Nebuchadnezzar tried to establish that image. Then he was overthrown. Then you end up with an image there in Zechariah. It's prophesying about what's going to happen during the tribulation period. And this image is built on the plains of Shinar. Do you know where it starts? That is the image that Antichrist sets up in the holiest of all, the holy of holies in the temple that's built in Jerusalem. And Jesus describes it as the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. That image is placed there in the holiest of all, and the religion is established in Babylon. And in everything, you know what else Babylon is called? The cradle of civilization. It's where the Tigris and the Euphrates meet. And that is where all civilization began. It's born there, and its grave is also there. That is where it all ends. That's Babylon. And that's why God wanted them to scatter out from there and not stay there. Go back to Daniel. I'm sorry. Go back to Genesis chapter 10. That religion, it spread to other countries. In Assyria, the mother was Ishtar and the son was Tammuz. In Phoenicia, the mother was Ashtarde and the son was Baal. In Egypt, she was Isis and her son was Osiris in, or Horus. And in Greece, she was Aphrodite, her son was Eros. And for the Romans, the mother was Venus and her son was Cupid. And so this religion, it spreads around the world. Now go back to Genesis chapter 11. And the whole earth, verse 1, was of one language and one speech, and that's what the world wants again. It's in the plain of Shinar, and they're wanting to build a tower that's going to reach whose top can reach to heaven. In verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of, man, of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. What? The building of that tower. 
and now nothing and the city and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do now some people might say whatever the mind of mind can conceive the whatever the mind of man can conceive the mind of man can achieve do you know that that's biblical look at what man has accomplished Amazing things, right? The only problem is we, we established from Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8 that the imaginations of a man's heart are only evil continually. So if you have a good thought, that thought comes from God. It doesn't come from you. If you're able to do good, that's not you. That is God or something that you have learned from God or the people of God. And this is the problem with the one-world system that's being established. It is a one-world system built completely on atheism. Completely rejecting the God of the Bible. Would you all agree with that? Would you all agree with that? Let's try and see a couple of more things here, and then I, I want to tie it up with some quotes. So look at what it says in verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city. Let us build us a city. It's interesting that the, the postal service is trying to close the post offices in all the small communities. How many of you knew that? Right? If you live in a small community, you know that the post office is trying to close it. Why? They're trying to drive people into the cities. They're trying to drive people into the cities. What about all this, this desire for mass transit? Mass transit. I was flying from... Uh, England to Africa. And I had a man, he was a, a Brit living in Germany. And I'm trying to be kind to this guy because I want to give him the gospel. But the whole flight, he's telling me how bad America is. And one of the things he said was, why do all you Americans think you need cars? And it's so interesting how Europeans know nothing about America. We're always told that we Americans are stupid if you travel. That, that's the that's, Europeans believe that we are stupid. But, Ameri but Europeans know nothing about America. Uh, Jeff had some guys in, I think they were from Italy. And he said, what are you guys going to do? It was Friday. What are you guys going to do this weekend? He said, we're going to Las Vegas. And he said, oh, you're going to fly? No, we're going to drive. <laughs> they were going to drive to Las Vegas, leaving Friday evening and coming back in time for work on Monday. They were going to drive. It's almost a three-day drive to Las Vegas. These guys are geniuses. That's what happens when all you have is mass transit. You don't understand how long it takes to get somewhere. It's very interesting. So this man said to me, why do all you Americans think you need to have cars? And I said, well, first of all, I can. We have an economy that allows for us to have an income to be able to provide for our own transportation. Amen. I said, secondly, I live five miles from the grocery store. I'm not going to pedal and have a little basket with enough food to, for us to live for a week. Right? It, it, it's just interesting. That is, that's the concept. They want us to all be gathered together into cities. Let's see what God says about that. Keep Genesis 11. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. All right, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed be those. Is that what it says? 
Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. You know, God wants you to have time alone. God wants you to have time away from other people, away from other houses. He wants you to have time. Otherwise, all you have is the influence of civilization on you, pressing on you constantly. Pressing, pressing, pressing. Influencing, changing, controlling. Always. And it's interesting. It used to be that it took years and years for fashions from New York and California to make it to Ohio. That's not the case anymore. It's almost immediate. Why? Because of communication. It's very interesting. Satan's world plan is to make us all one people. Why? Back to Genesis chapter 11. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. It's very important that you get this. God understands that if man unites, man will destroy himself. Now you recognize that it was only since the 1930s that man has had the technology to destroy everyone. And that's the atomic weapons. Before that, it would have been impossible for any one leader to kill everyone in the world. Well, now we have mutually assured destruction. It is possible to destroy every person on the face of the earth. You recognize that, right? Now, how many of you remember being <laughs> the drills where you'd crawl under your desk? How many of you remember that? That's helpful. Nuclear weapon. Get under your desk. I think that's called false hope. <laughs> it's really interesting to see what's going on in the world. So now the world is trying to gather us back into cities. The world is trying to make us all together and make us all one and unify our thinking. You see, if you think outside of what is culturally acceptable... Now you are being called bigoted, racist, hateful. Um, there are scientists now that if you do not believe in climate change, they believe that you should be put in prison, not allowed to speak. Where does that come from? We're going to look at that as part of our study in one of our other weeks. So why is it that the world wants to gather? Why does Satan want to gather us all together? to worship Him, to destroy man. He hates us. Verse 7, go to, let us, that's the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth that they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it, therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the languages of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Do you see that? Why did He do that? Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. 
Acts 17, look at verse 24. Why don't we read verse 22 for the context. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Listen to the page's turn. I'll wait till you get there. Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. And so these are the men of Athens. These are the educated philosophers and scientists. You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions... And isn't it interesting that people call what they do for God devotions? What did you do this morning, devotions? Okay, what God were you worshiping? Isn't it interesting, the language that people use? That's interesting, isn't it? You know what the Crusades were? That's where, you know, the, the Catholic Church went and killed Muslims and Jews and Christians in and, and the name of the, the church, right? And so why would someone ever call an evangelistic meeting a crusade? Isn't that interesting? What The language that people use. Anyway, back to the sermon. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, just like God said in Genesis 11. Do you see that? And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. So it's very important that we get this. God divided the people. He, sent, he divided their languages. He ordained when they would be born and where they would live so that they could find Him. So that the gospel could be preached unto them. So that they could see who He is and that they could be saved. So Satan wants to move everyone away from those places where they can be saved to where they can be gathered together and destroyed, and that is the one world system. Now, I've already gone longer than I wanted to today, and I've got to show you a few more things. It's very important that you get this. How many of you have heard of conspiracy theories? Right? That's not what we're going to talk about. That's not what we're going to talk about. The way that conversation is shut off is by marginalizing the speaker. Oh, he's a kook. He's a nut. I'm going to show you some kooks and nuts today. None of them are independent Baptists. None of them are conservative Christians. And let's look what these leaders, let's look at what these leaders are saying about a one world government and a new world order. How many of you have heard of the phrase new world order? Right? But what we have been programmed to think through television and the news is if you talk about a new world order, that you're some kind of a conspiracy freak that thinks there's a bunch of old white guys sitting in a room designing who's going to be the president, what's going to happen next. Am I right about that? Am I right about that? The only problem is the people that talk about the new world order are the people trying to bring about a new world order. And do you know what they mean by it? They mean a new world order. Let's see if we can discern that. This is from Henry Kissinger. Anyone heard of Henry Kissinger? Right-wing zealot. Is that who Henry Kissinger is? No. No. Today's Americans would vote in policy. Today's Americans would be outraged 
if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow, they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told there was an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, that threatened our very existence. It is then that all peoples of the world will pledge with world leaders to deliver them from this evil. The one thing every man fears is the unknown. When presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by their world government. That's Henry Kissinger in an address to the Bilderberg Organization in a meeting at Evian, France, May 21, 1991. Does that sound like a Baptist preacher? No, no. This is the leader. This is one of the leaders, one of the most influential people in the world talking about a government that's coming. Look at this. In 1931, in a speech to the Institute for the Study of International Affairs at Copenhagen, historian Arnold Toynbee said, now let me tell you about Arnold Toynbee. Arnold Toynbee is one of the most famous historians of the 20th century. And he is a professor or was a professor at the London School of Economics. The London School of Economics was established by a group called the Fabian Socialists. And a Fabian Socialist is a socialist that wants to bring about worldwide socialism through, a long, through what is called a long march through time. They're not going to come in with guns and try and overthrow us because there's not a nation in the world that could ever do that. They want to do the slow march through time. And so they established the London School of Economics. Which of our presidents graduated from the London School of Economics? John F. Kennedy. It's very interesting the influence that these people have in the, in, in the formulating of a world government. And so Arnold Toynbee is the historian that most other historians read. And listen to what he said in this speech to a study to the Institute for the Study of International Affairs. He said, We are at present working discreetly with all our might to wrest this mysterious force called sovereignty out of the clutches of the local nation states of the world. All the time we are denying with our lips what we are doing with our hands. They do not believe in national sovereignty. Have you ever wondered why our government doesn't close the borders? Do you know what they say if you want to close the borders? That you're a racist. You don't like Mexicans. Now, i got to tell you, I love Mexican people. The, 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 I, I have no problem with the, that group of people. Amen? They're, people who say that, they are liars. Now, let me tell you this. I don't want to lose our language. You want to destroy a nation? You want to destroy a nation? Confound their languages. Oh, God did that. That's interesting, isn't it? You see, the confounding of the language, that's not the blessing of God. That is to keep men from being prosperous. Within an individual nation, one language is good. For the whole world, one language is bad. I don't want to lose our language. I don't want to lose our form of government. I don't want to lose that. Can I ask you a question? Is Mexico's form of government equal to the United States' form of government? No, that's why they're coming here, right? We need to close our borders. Why? Because we believe in national sovereignty. 
The reason that it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, the reason it doesn't matter is they all are trying to do away with national sovereignty. They do not believe in it. And I'll be demonstrating that to you this evening. Now, Friedrich Engels, not Charles Engels, that's a different person. Friedrich Engels worked with who? Karl Marx. And they established, they wrote the Communist Manifesto and tried to establish worldwide socialism and communism. Now, the reason I'm talking about this, Satan wants to attack, number one, the church, number two, national sovereignty to bring about globalism. And the only way that you can truly destroy a people, a Christian people, is to destroy the family and sexual purity. You all agree with that? You all agree with that? Okay. So listen to what Friedrich Engels wrote. And his book is The Origin of the Family. All right? He said, The first condition for the liberation of the wife is to bring the whole female sex back into public industry. And this, in turn, demands the abolition of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. With the transfer of the means of production into common ownership, the single family ceases to be the economic unit of society. Now look at this. Private housekeeping is transformed into a social industry. Remember, trying to move us into communal living, away from single-family dwellings, right? That's what's going on. The care and education of the children become a public affair. He wrote this in the 1870s. Listen, the idea for the public secular education of children did not come from God. The care and education of the children become a public affair. Society looks after all children alike, whether they are legitimate or not. This removes all anxiety about the consequences, which today is the most essential social, moral, as well as economic factor that prevents a girl from giving herself completely to the man she loves. So what's that talking about? It's talking about having physical relationships with whatever man you want to, because we're going to remove the stigma of out-of-marriage births. Do you think that idea came from God? No. Now look, will not that suffice to bring about the gradual growth of unconstrained sexual intercourse and with it a more tolerant public opinion in regard to a maiden's honor and a woman's shame? Is that interesting? That is exactly what Satan wants to do through socialism and communism and the whole idea. Let's get the women into the factories. Let's get them out of the homes. Let's get them into the industry. Let's break down the family unit. Now, again, I know how your minds work. You think pastors preaching against women working. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that the communists and the Marxists and again, even that language has made us sound like freaks when we say it. Right? Can I tell you, Friedrich Engels was a Marxist. He's the father of it along with Karl Marx, okay? He was the only friend Marx had. So it's very important that we get this. These concepts for the destruction of the family, 
the breaking down of social barriers and moral barriers and the all coming together in a one world conglomeration, amalgamation with no consideration for morality. That does not come from God. It comes from Satan. This is from David Rockefeller. Now, John D. Rockefeller, anyone heard of him? Okay, he was the wealthiest man in the world. He would have, con- he would have personally owned 1.5% of the world's wealth. So, to put it in, in contrast or in context, the wealthiest man in the world is Bill Gates, and he's worth about $60 billion. To be equal to the, the amount, the percentage of wealth that Rockefeller controlled, he'd have to have $350 billion. Rockefeller was the, the most influential man of his day. He was a Baptist, but he was a liberal Baptist. He founded the University of Chicago, a liberal Baptist institution. He became a member of the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church in New York City, and he is the one, he was, as a deacon, he brought in Harry Emerson Fosdick as pastor of that church. Now it's Riverside Church. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a famous liberal who in 1925 preached the famous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Defending a denial of the virgin birth and the, the atonement of Jesus Christ and the deity of Christ. All right? So that's who David Rockefeller, this would be his grandson. He said this. This is in his memoirs in 2002. Some believe we, the Rockefeller family, are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists, and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global, political, and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. So the Rockefeller Foundation. How many of you have ever been watching something on PBS and saw that it was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation? Do you know who paid, who bought the land for the United Nations? John D. Rockefeller. Do you know who has tried to under, do you know who funded the Divinity School at Vanderbilt University, which was the first major liberal university in America? John D. Rockefeller. So liberal theology, denial of national sovereignty, control of the press, um, J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller bought the 75 most influential newspapers in America so they could control what content the people heard and read. It's very interesting. We can go into some more of it another time. But this is, this is the idea, a one world. That's what they're going for. All right, this was a book that was influential in the teachers' colleges earlier in the 20th century. Dare the school build a new social order? The educator, author, I almost thought they said Ecuador. That didn't make sense. The educator, author, George Counts, asserts that, listen, the teachers should deliberately reach for power and then make the most of their conquest in order to influence the social attitudes, ideals, and behavior of the coming generation. Attitudes, ideas, and behavior. How many of you teachers have ever heard that put together? Attitudes, ideas, and behavior. Any of the teachers? You heard that? That's what Common Core is going to control. Ideas, attitudes, and behavior. Where did it come from? Right here. Why? The growth of science and technology 
has carried us into a new age where ignorance must be replaced by knowledge, competition by cooperation, trust and providence by careful planning, and private capitalism by some form of social economy. So look at what the teacher is supposed to do. Get rid of, get rid of ignorance and replace it with knowledge. What is ignorance? What you learned from your parents and what you learned at church. I'll demonstrate that here in a couple of weeks when we do the education lesson. Competition by cooperation. Competition, that's called capitalism. Cooperation, that's socialism. Trust in providence, that's God, by careful planning. Uh, Edward Deming, total quality management, planned society, planned cultures, planned outcomes, outcome-based education. It's all the same thing. It all goes back to this. And then private capitalism by some form of social economy. You know, this competition by cooperation, no child left behind. Compulsory promotion, right? Participation awards. We're all winners. January 1946, the NEA, National Education Association Journal. Imagine this, 1946, teachers. I know many of you teachers are, are struggling with the NEA constantly, Right? Look, this is, they published The Teacher and World Government by Joy Elmer Morgan, editor of the NEA Journal. Now, the first problem is his parents named him Joy. So he's the editor of the journal from 21 to 55, in which he proclaims, quote, In the struggle to establish an adequate world government, the teacher can do much to prepare the hearts and minds of children for global understanding and cooperation. At the very top of all the agencies which will assure the coming of world government must stand the school, the teacher, and the organized profession. Now, so do you see that when we talk about world government and how that is a satanic plan, that he's using instruments in the economy, in the school, in the environment, in the United Nations, all to influence people away from God away from the family unit and the church unit into a global society. That is Satan's plan against God and against mankind. UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. All right? On November 17, 2004, at UNESCO's headquarters in Paris, so this is the United Nations Committee on Education and Culture, they signed, here, UNESCO signed a 26-page cooperation agreement with Microsoft, Bill Gates, founder and CEO, to develop a master curriculum for teacher training and in information technologies based on standards, guidelines. Have you teachers seen this right here? Benchmarks and assessment techniques. Gates initialed every page and agreed that this curriculum was to reflect UNESCO's values. So this is the common core curriculum that is being pushed today. Okay, now look. I want you to know what UNESCO's values are. Very important. Julian Huxley. Now, Aldous Huxley, his brother, wrote what? A Brave New World. Their grandfather, Thomas Huxley, was Darwin's bulldog. And he brought Herbert Spencer to the United States to introduce him and social Darwinism into the culture. Herbert Spencer is the one who coined the term survival of the fittest. So these are the people, they're signers of the Humanist Manifesto 1 and the Humanist Manifesto 2, which said that they, we need to establish 
a new religion called secularism and humanism. And that will be the basis for the school system. All right? So Julian Huxley signed that. He's one of the authors of the Humanist Manifesto too. Look at what he said. He described UNESCO, its purpose, and its philosophy as including a scientific world humanism, global in extent and evolutionary in background, with transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization, political unification in some sort of world government would be required. That is the purpose and philosophy of UNESCO. And Bill Gates said that that new curriculum, the new benchmarks, and the new standards agree completely with this. That's where we are in the world today. What in the world is going on? Look at our text. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. We need to understand that our culture, our homes, our national sovereignty, our faith, our God is all under attack by Satan moving us to a one world system. Last statement I'm going to make on this. There is not a group of white men that gather together in a room with cigars and order what's going to happen in the world. It's not. But there are very few philosophers that influenced the top schools. I'm talking about universities in America. And then the, the people that went to those universities, privileged, they don't have to work. They have money. They have plenty of time. They are indulged. On top of that, they are brilliant because they come from the families that have built the best companies and largest companies and organizations in the world. So through heredity, they have brilliant minds, unlimited finances, and all the time in the world and they go and they listen to radical philosophies and they discuss these radical philosophies and when that is not when that radical philosophy is just the norm on the campus now they have to come up with a newer more radical philosophy and so they read the next most radical philosopher and thinker and they are they are programmed in that kind of thinking and then because of their family connections and business connections, these are the people that get the jobs in the highest think tanks and the highest bureaucratic structures in the United States. So regardless of who the president is or who the secretary of state is, the State Department does not change. Those people come from these Ivy League schools where they've been involved in these uh, societies or fraternities or sororities where these radical ideas are uh, promulgated into the minds of these individuals. And now this pinhead from Yale who's never had a job in his life is now on a regulatory board. And so the farmer in Iowa or Kansas who has never even heard this man's name is being directed in everything he does by that person. That person on the regulatory commission, that pinhead, he doesn't know who's the head of another organization, 
but they have the same goals because they agree with the same philosophy. And that is the government of the uneducated rubes by the educated elite. And they agree with these ideas. And so they find people that think like they do and network with them, and that is called the United Nations. That's called all of these different organizations that contribute ideas, think tanks, into our government. Later on, we'll talk about the different schools and how they were influenced and where these ideas came from. But we need to understand that Satan has an agenda. And if everything these people are doing are against God, they did not get that from God. Amen? The push toward a one-world government and a one-world educational system and a complete lack of morality, biblical morality, combined with the technical advancements of our day. That's where the undermining of our culture is coming from. Why did the gay marriage thing take over so fast? Because of Facebook, Twitter, emails, texts. Why couldn't it gain traction before? Because there was not that connectivity in the world. It wasn't there. What's happening? People are becoming one. And their imaginations are unrestrained. That's the world that we're living in. How many of you recognize that that really is the world that we're living in? You, you see it. i got to tell you, it's coming to an end. Our liberty is coming to an end. If the Lord doesn't return, our liberties will be gone. Here's the question. If you died today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? If the economy collapses, if our, our, our um, electrical grid goes down, all those things that all of the emergency management people are telling us could happen at any time, if those things happen, you died, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Where does Satan want you to go? He wants you to go to hell. Where does God want you to go? He wants you to go to heaven. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Have you done that? If you haven't, you can do it today. Here's the last question that I want to ask you. This information that I brought you about globalism, that's not from Alex Jones. He's a conspiracy nut. This is from Henry Kissinger. This is from Julian Huxley. This is from Bill Gates. Do you see? These are the movers and shakers in our world. Um, I, I had another quote. I don't know why it didn't come up there. We'll get it tonight. I, I want you to know Everything we love is under attack. Amen? Everything that we love, our children, our wives, our families, our church, our faith, our nation and our national sovereignty, it's all under attack. We need to be aware of it so that we know how to live in this world. Amen? So that we're not surprised. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is amazing that everything that you said in Genesis is happening.